preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Uh, Why don't you take your Bibles and open up not to the book of 1 Peter, but to the book of Matthew. And uh, why am I doing this? It's because there were so many questions about uh, the church and its relationship to government uh, that I've decided to, uh, to hold off and do a Back to Basics Sunday on uh, the church and its relationship to, to government. So uh, you'll have to hold off for the rest of that message. Uh, but definitely looking forward to that. So uh, uh, be prepared. Uh, you'll be getting some uh, handouts and uh, we can work through uh, that together. Uh, but there's a lot of questions that we, uh, we want to cover in that. But um, uh, thanks again, Larry, for, uh, uh, for sharing your testimony uh, with us. And uh, uh, very grateful for you, brother. And uh, look forward to uh, how the Lord will continue to use you uh, at Baltimore Bible Church. So God bless you, brother. Matthew chapter 17 is where we're going to be, and uh, one of the reasons for for this is because uh, what it shares, uh, what Jesus shares with uh, with Peter here in uh, Matthew chapter 17 is uh, uh, very connected to what we'll be learning in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, so I wanted to connect uh, both of these texts together, and uh, Lord willing, by the end of uh, our time together, you'll see uh, the connection uh, that we'll make there, but uh, looking forward to uh, exploring that uh, together with you. Jesus in this uh, narrative, uh, he's been away from the, the region of Galilee for, for months. Uh, the last time he was in the region of, of Galilee, and uh, a lot of Jesus' ministry was in, in Galilee. And uh, it was clear back in chapter 15, uh, where we find this ministry in Galilee, where he fed the 5,000, where he walked on the water. And uh, since this time, uh, Jesus has been traveling north of Galilee in the areas of Tyre and Sidon. Actually, if you remember a couple weeks back, we talked about the, uh, uh, the Canaanite uh, woman, uh, the Syrophoenician uh, woman uh, that he uh, healed, her, uh, her, her daughter. And uh, we learned about that uh, a few uh, weeks ago in uh, chapter 15. And we also know that Jesus spent a considerable amount of time in an area known as Caesarea Philippi, uh, which was north of Galilee as well. And this is where he asked his disciples, uh, who do you say that I, the son of man, am? And uh, it was revealed to them that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And obviously they didn't come up with that on their own. Uh, It was the father in heaven who had revealed that truth to them. Uh, It was also in this area where uh, Jesus revealed himself to the three disciples on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, he also uh, healed those who were demon-possessed. And the kind of travel that Jesus uh, did in this northern area north of Galilee would have taken months. You know, so Jesus has left Galilee. He's been traveling for months uh, outside of Galilee, even into Gentile regions. And uh, finally, Jesus is coming back to his area of Galilee. And uh, like I said, this is months that he's been away. And kind of like just when you go away on vacation for a while and you come back and there's those bills you know, that are waiting for you when you get back home, that you, the mail that you have to sort through. 
Here Jesus returns back to Galilee and just as soon as it was known that Jesus and his disciples were returning back from this long trip away, the tax collectors show up. Tax collectors show up. Look at uh, verse 24 over in Matthew 17. Verse 24. It says that when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. Well, that's irritating. You know, you, you come home after a, a long trip away, barely set foot in uh, Galilee, and uh, immediately you're interrupted by these tax collectors with their hands out and their bags open. And it's important to recognize that this wasn't a regular Roman tax. This was a collection that wasn't required by Rome. This was a, a tax that wasn't required by the normal tax collectors. This was a, a religious tax that Rome allowed the Jewish people to collect for their temple service. Uh, it wasn't enforced, but it was expected to be paid. The temple tax was uh, really never meant to be a burden. And uh, if you flip back to Exodus chapter 30, I just want to show you this. Uh, this is where we find the first mention of this kind of tax back in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, where God instituted this tax to take care of the, the service that took place in the tabernacle and later on uh, in the temple. Uh, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, we find that there were these instructions given for the different implements that were to be used in the worship of ancient Israel. Uh, God gives instructions here for the, the tabernacle itself, for the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstands, the priests themselves, everything that they would need to offer sacrifice. And uh, Chapter 30 opens up with this instruction for the altar of incense. And down in verse 12, Moses was directed to collect a half shekel from every man 20 years old and up to maintain the service in the tabernacle. Look at verse 13 in Exodus chapter 30. It says, this is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more. The poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel, shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. A half shekel was equal to two drachmas. Same amount that's being discussed over in Matthew. It wasn't a large amount of money. It was equivalent to two days of work for the average worker. It wasn't much. Uh, missing two days worth of uh, pay would, would hurt, but it wasn't enough to, to break the bank. Uh, it was meant, wasn't meant to be a, a burden. It was fixed, and the, the rich wouldn't pay more. The poor wouldn't pay less. And far from being a burden, it was meant to be a joy. Over in Second uh, Chronicles chapter uh, 24, uh, where the, the temple replaced the tabernacle uh, that had fallen into to disrepair, uh, there was a, a righteous king by the name of, of Joash who decided to restore the house of the Lord. And just want to flip over there uh, real quick. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Look at verse 4 in Second Chronicles chapter 24. It says, now it came about after this that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. He gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and collect money from all Israel to repair the house of your God annually. And you shall do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, on the congregation of Israel for the tent of the testimony? For the sons of 
the wicked Athaliah had broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the Baals, or the Baals as you might uh, call them. So the king commanded and they made a chest and set it outside by the gate of the house of the Lord. They made a proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of God, on Israel in the wilderness. All the officers and all the people rejoiced and brought in their levies and dropped them into the chest until they had finished. And this was meant to be a joyous occasion to contribute to the service, to contribute to the Lord's house. And here we actually find that the people of the Lord rejoiced in the gifts that were given. Uh, if you uh, uh, drop down to Second Chronicles, uh, uh, second, um, uh, actually, Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapter four, you already read that. But in Second Corinthians uh, chapter nine and verse seven, it talks about uh, giving with a, a joyful heart. Right. This is the same way that they were supposed to give in this case. The giving to the temple was never meant to be a burden. It was meant to be joyful, a cheerful expression of gratitude to the Lord. But as we know, by the time of Christ, the service in the temple was shot through with corruption. Giving became a, a heavy weight around the necks of the people. Over in uh, John chapter 2, we find that Jesus even cleared out the temple uh, because it had become so corrupt twice. Jesus clears out the temple. In uh, John chapter 2, again in Matthew chapter 21. And during this time, the temple had become the base of operations for, for the religious crooks. The hideout for, for hoodlums. And not far from where some churches are today as they, they rake the money in. You know, people uh, uh, really take it for a joke today. You know, the churches that, that ask for, for money. And here in John 2, you find that this vicious pack of wolves were gathered in to pick apart the sheep. They were, they were buying and selling in the temple. They made the, the temple a place of business. Uh, offerings the people brought to the Lord, they considered not good enough. Uh, so if you brought a sheep, they'd examine your sheep and say, you know what? You know, this, this sheep might be all right for you, but it's not enough for the, the temple of the Lord. It's not enough to bring to the you know, bring us an offering. It's not up to code. So, uh, you know, but for the low, low price, you know, of whatever the set amount was, you know, we can get you a sheep that does pass inspection. You know, that money that you brought, you know, that might be all right for, for other payments, but, you know, that, that money isn't accepted here. But, you know, for the, the low, low price of this kind of transaction, uh, we can work something up for you so that your money will be acceptable before the Lord. And many of these Jewish people that have traveled from all over the the world to come to Jerusalem were taken advantage of, and uh, Jesus was infuriated with what was going on. So giving had become a tremendous burden. Instead of being joyful, it was agonizing, it was painful. But in addition to the irritation of dealing with these greedy collectors, Peter had just confessed something about Jesus. He had just come to understand something about who Jesus was. In Matthew 16, 16, Peter said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here's the question. What would the Son of God be doing paying taxes? Paying any kind of contribution for the temple that he owns? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6 that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus was greater than the temple because he owned the temple. He stood over the whole system. Back in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8, he's even called Lord of the Sabbath. And Peter had just witnessed his majesty, his, his revelation of who he was, a dazzling display of the glory of the Son of God on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is he as the owner of the ends of the earth to pay taxes? And what I find interesting about the question in verse 24 uh, back in, in Matthew, the, the question that 
that is asked in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 24 by those who collected the taxes is, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He, he pays that tax, doesn't he? Kind of like, like rubbing it in. You know, that, that, that teacher that you have, uh, you know, the, the one that you call the teacher, the master, you know, the, the one who, uh, who kind of came into the temple and cleaned house, he, he still pays the taxes, doesn't he? As, as if he's still, he's still under our thumb. We, we still have some kind of control over him. And with some kind of voice of defeat, Peter says, yes, yes, he pays the tax. He pays the tax. Walks away in frustration. And we know that it bothered Peter because when he arrives in the house, likely his own house, in verse 26, we find that, uh, actually, verse 25, we find that Jesus spoke to him. <laughs> find it interesting, he didn't even have to say what was on his mind. Jesus just, just speaks, knowing what was already on his mind. He says, uh, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from the strangers? Peter comes in and he's discouraged. You know, that, that my teacher has to pay this tax. I'm discouraged about this. This is the Lord, the Lord of glory. This is the, the one who owns the temple. Aren't you the king? Aren't you the Messiah? Why don't you finally show them what you're made of? Show them that you don't have to bow to their system. It's a corrupt system anyway. Why would you have to pay to contribute to that? And as believers, we can sometimes share the, the same struggles. You know, maybe you're, you're on, a, on a job, there's an unsafe boss at work, unsafe supervisor. You might think to yourself, this, this man is ungodly. He's unsaved. He has no regard for the things of God. He doesn't know what he's doing anyway. He's unreasonable. He's ignorant. And, and besides, where does all this money go anyway? <laughs> what, what is he doing with his, his company? You know, I've seen it. Every time I ask for the raise, they act like they don't have it. But yet, every, every year, he's, he's driving a new car. What in the world is going on? Here I am working for, for this guy. Why should I have to listen to him? I'm a, I'm a child of the king. My father owns this company. You know, why should I have to listen to this guy? I'm the head and not the tail. I'm above and I'm not beneath. I don't have to put up with this. Or maybe it's a relationship to the government. You know, you can't trust the government anyway. They're foolish. They're rebellious. <laughs> they're enslaved to their lust. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Their words are filled with malice, with envy. I can't submit to them. Why should I? Jesus is my king. He's the ruler over this nation. I don't have to put up with this. Jesus 2020. And besides, I know that my money is going to, uh, to, to go and fund their wicked agendas that I don't agree with. They, they promise and they don't deliver. They waste my money. The rich get richer at my expense. I shouldn't have to support this. Why do I even pay my taxes? Why do I even have to pay my taxes? And you could multiply the different kinds of illustrations, you know, unsafe spouse, all kinds of scenarios. You know, here you have these ungodly, crooked, greedy, corrupt religious leaders who are over the system of the temple. Jesus is greater than the temple. How is Jesus supporting this? How is Jesus supporting these wicked leaders? How does that work? So that leaves Peter confused. And it's obvious that it's on his mind. And like I said, Jesus already knows. You know, Peter enters into the house. He's troubled by this. Like I said, before Peter can even get a word out, Jesus says, I already know what's on your mind, Peter. 
I already know what's going on. Before Peter could speak, Jesus reads his mind, which we find all over the Gospels that Jesus knows exactly what we're thinking. In John chapter 1, verse 47 to 49, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, came to him, and uh, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel is like, How? How? How do you know me? <laughs> how do you, what, what do you know about me? And he says, uh, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel, and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. <laughs> Over in John 6, 64, Jesus said he, it says that Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe. There were some who did not believe. Jesus knew. In John 16, 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him, you know, those of his attackers. And he says, are you deliberating about this? Jesus knew it all. Jesus knows exactly what's going on inside of Peter's head. It's, it's part of uh, the, the defense of his deity. And Jesus answers his question with the question, as he often did. You know, what, what do you think, Simon? Verse 25, from whom do you, the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And he uses a very simple illustration. If a king is ruling over a nation and he defeats that nation, from whom does he collect those taxes? He doesn't turn around to his kids and collect taxes from them. The obvious answer is no. He collects them from the, the people that he rules over. That's how it happened in a monarchy. In a democracy like we, we have here in the, the U.S., you know, the presidents still pay their taxes just like everybody else, or at least they're supposed to, right? No special exemption, right? Presidents have to, to fill out their W-2s just like everybody else. Follow a tax return just like everybody else. But that was not true under a kingship. The king doesn't pay taxes. The citizens pay taxes. Those that he subjugates pay taxes. And Peter understood that. And Peter says, but, but in Christ, you're the, you're the king. You're the king. When Solomon reigned over the, the kingdom, he collected taxes from those that served him. Taxes were collected from the, the nations as tribute. He didn't get his kids to fund his building projects. He had the, the, the citizens fund the building projects. And Jesus uses this simple illustration to make a profound point. Because who is the king of the temple? God is. And who's his son? Jesus is. So when Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, he was at the same time declaring that Jesus was also free from the temple tax and from the temple restrictions. Because sons are not taxed, the strangers are. So in this brief verse, we have another evidence of who Jesus is. He's the, the son of God. And there's this irony in all this. The temple belongs to God. Jesus is one with God. So really paying taxes is like paying himself. <laughs> Giving money to himself, which is completely useless. The sons are exempt from the taxes. So if that's true, why does Jesus subject himself to this tax at all? Why not assert himself? Show people who's boss. I mean, that's what we would do. You know, I don't have to do this. I'm not doing it. You know, I'm going to show you that I don't have to do it. I'm not, I'm not paying tax. I'm, I'm above you. You know, demand your rights. Fight for your rights. Exercise your rights. But here's the example that, that Christ gave to us, that he denied himself, freely laid down his rights, refused to use his rights for our benefit. Even though he was rich, he became poor. Even though he had all the, the rights in the universe, he laid them aside for our sake. Voluntarily. I laid down my own life. Voluntarily. Second Corinthians 8 9 puts it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Why don't you flip over to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. 
familiar portion of scripture, but we'll take a look at it anyway. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 to 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This wasn't forced on Jesus. Jesus, Jesus humbled himself. He, he willingly laid down his life. Back in Matthew 17, we have another example of Jesus willingly laying down his rights as God for the sake of men. But in this case, he gives us another reason why he laid down these rights. Back to, to Matthew chapter 17 again. Verse 25 again, it says, What do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers... Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Sons are exempt. And you might think Peter's saying in his mind, that's right, we're the sons and we're not paying. That's right. But look at what Jesus says in verse 27. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. You might expect Jesus to say, since we're exempt, we're not paying anything. And you might think that Jesus isn't worried about offending anybody. <laughs> no, Jesus didn't butter anybody up. He called the Pharisees hypocrites, sons of hell, to their faces. He told the, the crowds who tried to follow him, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and offended the entire crowd. He even told his star disciple, Peter, to get behind me, Satan. Jesus wasn't one to mince words, right? What do you mean Jesus doesn't want to offend people? He's been offending people all over the place. He's the, the equal opportunity offender. But Jesus was wise enough to pick his offenses carefully. And we can learn a lot from the example of Jesus. Number one, Jesus did not hesitate to offend people if it brought honor to the Lord, to the Lord God. Back in John chapter 2, when Jesus braided together a whip of cords, tossed over the money tables in the temples, he wasn't worried about who might be offended in the process. Of course they were offended by what Jesus did. But what Jesus was doing was defending the honor of God. This is, this is my father's house. And you're making it into a, a den of robbers, a den of thieves. In Psalm 69 verse 9 it says, for, the, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. And the disciples connected that with Jesus. The zeal for the house of God has eaten him up. It's like when, when, when the father's attacked, I feel the pain. When the worship of God is turned into something that it's not, I feel the pain. Jesus also didn't hesitate to offend people if it advanced the kingdom of God. Now, the message of the gospel was clearly offensive. People were offended by, by the message. In John chapter 6, we, we know that, that Jesus turned up the heat on the crowds, offended them by the language that he used. You have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. The disciples are even cringing, saying, Jesus, this is so difficult. Who can listen to this? But Jesus isn't worried about offending people. He's not going to try to try to make the gospel easier than what it actually is. You have to deny yourself. Are you, are you ready to follow me even if I make it difficult to follow after me? Are you ready to pick up your cross? The message of Jesus in the kingdom was offend, uh, offensive. Jesus also didn't hesitate to offend people if it was a benefit to them. 
When, when Jesus rebuked Peter and called him Satan, that was actually a help to Peter. Peter, you need to know your place. You need to understand the truth. Better is open rebuke than secret love, it says in Proverbs 27, verse 5. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus also didn't hesitate to offend people if it protected others. Over in Matthew 15, if you want to flip over there real quick, when uh, the Pharisees and scribes accused the disciples of breaking their traditions and gave people the impression that the disciples were, were lawbreakers, Jesus immediately spoke up. Matthew chapter 15 and 7 down to, to 14. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said, hear and understand it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the statement? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. If a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Jesus didn't care about offending them. And here it's in defense of his disciples and the idea that if this teaching goes unchecked, it's going to harm more people. I'm not going to allow it to go unchecked. Jesus didn't hesitate to offend people if it brought honor to God, advanced the kingdom, benefited others, protected others. But sadly, when we offend people, it's kind of the opposite of that. It's the exact opposite. You know, we offend people if it brings honor to us. We offend people if it advances our agenda. We offend people if it benefits us. We offend people if it protects us. But that's where Jesus didn't hesitate to lay down his rights. He'd lay down his rights if it was just about him alone. And we struggle with the desire to show off who we are, what we've done. We want everybody to know. You know, everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know what I've done. But here Jesus is willing to, to lay his life down. He could have argued for his rights as the son of God, being greater than the temple, the heir of the throne. I don't have to pay tax. And we need to be aware of our own struggles with this. But just so that Peter didn't miss the point, that he was really exempt from the tax, that he was greater than the temple, that he possesses all things, he still shows Peter this private miracle back in verse 27, back in Matthew chapter 17 again. He says, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. This was, this was rich food. <laughs> As he pulls up this fish that's loaded. And the, the miracle is to show Peter that I really am exempt. I, I really don't have to give this tax. I really own everything. Like, like there's, there's nothing that doesn't belong to me. I am the king, Peter. Don't worry about that. And uh, he, he, he allows this, this fish to, to pull up the exact amount that's needed for both him and Peter. The, the shekel would have been enough for the, the two drachma tax for both Peter and for Jesus. Really showing shown him that he's exempt, that everything belongs to me anyway. I remember when I was uh, young, sometimes I'd collect change from around the, the house, you know, pick it up from under the seats and, you know, in the cushions and, you know, find it in the, in the car, you know. And I'd collect all these coins and I'd give it to my dad. Say, hey, dad, I've got like, you know, $3 here. Can I get like $3 bills? And uh, he'd give it to me, you know, give me $3. And then, you know, I'd go and find some more change and bring that back. Hey, dad, can I get like $2 for that? You know, $2 bills for that. 
And then eventually he'd say, hey, son, you know what? All this belongs to me anyway. <laughs> like, like all you're doing is giving me my own money back, you know? But I, th- I thought I was like, hey, I fa- look at what I found. I found money, you know? It's like, you don't find, that's one of the things my dad always taught me. You don't find money. <laughs> you didn't find money in your own house. Like, this is my money. What are you talking about? Like, just giving back to him what, what's already belonged to him. And, and here, you know, Jesus is taking the, it's just kind of from one hand to the other. It's already mine. You know, I can move it from the, 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 the sea and, you know, put it into the, 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 the temple coffers. It's, like, it's no big deal. It's just moving it from one hand to the other. Taking his own money and giving it back to himself. But if that prevents somebody from being offended, it's not a big deal. You know, not because I'm protecting myself, benefiting myself, advancing myself, bringing honor to myself. If it, if it just doesn't offend people, let's, let's just do it. And these are some of the same principles that should guide us even in our use of Christian liberties. And I'll, I'll close with this because um, even though something could be within your rights, doesn't mean that it is right, right? You could have a right and still be wrong. And the, the first question shouldn't be, you know, uh, can I do it? But the question should be, should I do it? Should I do it? Will exercising my right bring honor to God's name? You know, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one: whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but for the profit of many, so that they may be saved. One question I have to ask myself is, will my liberty, you know, exercising my liberty, will this, will this bring honor to, to God? Will this bring glory to God? You know, save yourself a lot of trouble. Is, is this going to glorify God in exercising this right? Number two, will exercising my right advance the kingdom of God? You know, I'm not sure if you ever thought about this, but... Uh, the Apostle Paul had two sons in the faith, Timothy and, and Titus. And Paul had Timothy circumcised, and Paul made sure that Titus was not circumcised. And in both cases, it was for the exact same reason. So, so Timothy was circumcised in order that the, the gospel would continue to be spread because they knew that his mother was Jewish. So it's like, you know, you're a Jewish person, you haven't been circumcised, what in the world? So it's like, Timothy, just, just get circumcised so that, you know, it doesn't uh, uh, prevent the message from going out. You know, we want the gospel to continue to be spread. Just, just do it so that the gospel can continue to be spread. In the case of, of Titus, it's like, Titus, don't get circumcised. Why? Because, because you're not Jewish, you're Greek, you're Gentile. Why would you be circumcised? You're actually going to give people the wrong impression that you have to be circumcised as a Gentile in order to be saved. Same exact reason in both cases we want to advance the kingdom of God we're advancing the gospel of God you need to ask yourself the question will exercising my right advance the gospel or distract from it number three will exercising my right be a benefit to other people and the whole issue of uh you know eating meat or not eating meat in Romans 14 you know the meat that was sacrificed to idols is really about loving your brother more than yourself you know, if my brother is convinced that my meat or my wine is sinful to partake in, the last thing that I want to do is set a plate down before him and say, eat. You know, I don't care if that offends you. I don't care what your conscience is telling you. You know, your conscience is telling you that's wrong, that you don't have the faith to do it. Do it anyway. You don't, you don't try to encourage somebody to do that, which is against their conscience to do. Because now you're the one that's sinning. Trying to force somebody to do that which is against their conscience. You know, even if you're invited to an unbeliever's house in this case, 
And if it would offend the unbeliever by walking away from the meal, you offend the unbeliever. Because the, the goal is to, to protect the believer. It's to, to defend the believer. First Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this, 27 to 29. If one of the unbelievers invites you, you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this, this meat is, is sacrificed to idols. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for conscience sake, I mean, not for your own conscience, but for the other man's. You want to protect his conscience. Don't violate your brother's conscience. Don't tell him, just keep your conscience quiet on this one. You know, this is just what we have to do. You offend your guest and protect your brother. That's the loving thing to do. And lastly, will exercising my right protect others? In Acts chapter 16, you have uh, Paul who's thrown into prison at Philippi. He does something there that he does nowhere else. He actually demands that the magistrates come down and personally escort him out of jail. You remember that? Acts chapter 16. And I don't think that this was for his own benefit. There, there was a young fledgling church to protect in Philippi. And he wanted to make sure that the magistrates knew that this is no uh, illegal gathering. He wanted to make sure that they understood that, uh, that this is actually protected. That I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. And you're going to lead me out in the sight of everybody. To let everybody know that what you did was wrong. That this persecution was wrong. Our rights should be used even to protect others. Will it be used for the honor of God, the advance of his kingdom, to benefit others? Will it protect others? Do we seek to give no offense to others? Do we seek to protect the consciences of others? And all of this was regarding... All these lessons came out of uh, this, this tax that Jesus paid that he really didn't have to pay. But flip over to, to 1 Peter chapter 2 real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2. Just want to show you this, and we'll, we'll jump back into this next time we're together. But 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll, we'll dig into this more next time. But again, just to return to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Look at verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Like I said, we'll dig into this more next time. But in that phrase, act as free men, do you know what? Peter is saying here that in regards to this submission to government, to the kings, to these human institutions, do you know what? You're actually free. You're actually free. That as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, you don't belong here. Let's say, for instance, you're over in France and you hear the French government talking about, you know, hey, these are the new laws, and this is what we're rolling out, and, you know, we want all the, the citizens here to, to do this and to do that. You know what? If I come over there as an American citizen, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a citizen of that country. I'm a citizen of a different country. In the same way here, Peter has just explained to these people that you're aliens, that you're strangers, that you don't belong here that you're not citizens here, that you actually belong to a heavenly kingdom. And he says, you are free. Act as free men. But yet, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, because even though you're free from 
This world and this world system, you're still a bond slave of God. So as bond slaves of God, there's still things that we have to do underneath that service to God. But recognize that in regards to the citizenship here, you're actually free. We have a freedom, church. We have a freedom in Jesus Christ. And that's something that we want to make sure that we explore the next time uh, we get together. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this text. And uh, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the freedom that's been provided to us in Christ. And uh, Father, we uh, pray that you would help us to, uh, to understand what that freedom is and understand what, what it really means, Lord, for us to be bondservants of, of God. Uh, Father, that our ultimate allegiance is to him. And even though there's an honor to be given uh, to those that are above us, to uh, the authorities, the governing authorities, uh, that still Peter even recognizes that there is a fear that it's to be given to God. That we're to, to honor all men. That we're to fear God, to love the brotherhood, to honor the king. But there is a fear that is to be given to God and to him alone in this sense. So, Father, I pray that we would understand where we are, that we understand who we belong to. Uh, Father, that we would understand what our responsibilities are as well. And, uh, Father, we uh, pray that you'd give us a, a proper understanding of, of all these things uh, for your sake, for your glory. And, Father, that uh, you would be pleased. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.